0: This podcast was recorded on Thursday, June 25th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight
1: Time. I love politics. I love electoral campaigns. But at this moment, uh, I don't think anybody thinks about that.
0: Lots has happened in the last three months.
2: We're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction.
0: The World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic and governments in Canada responded, shutting down the borders, schools, restaurants, hair salons, even Parliament.
1: What we're doing today shows how serious we're taking this and how we can collaborate together.
0: The premiers of Ontario and Quebec both announced all non-essential businesses will be closed at midnight tomorrow. Roughly 3 million people lost their jobs in March and April. As officials work to protect the country's most vulnerable...
3: I'm calling on all of Canada to pull together and flatten
4: this curve.
0: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau promised Canadians would not be left to fend for themselves.
4: No one should have to worry about paying rent, buying groceries or additional childcare because of COVID-19.
0: But despite more than $150 billion in projected direct federal spending and billions more for health measures, tax deferrals and liquidity support, that promise hasn't come true for some. I think
5: the response to people with disabilities has been absolutely dismal.
0: On this podcast, we look at how the federal parties responded to the crisis and what it might mean for the life of this minority government. The Liberals are riding high in public opinion polls at 40% this week, majority territory, according to Abacus data. But their dancing partners seem to have left them on the sidelines.
6: We feel that the government has the responsibility of acknowledging the fact that it is a minority
0: government. Government house leader, Pablo Rodriguez joins us. Of course, other topics have also dominated the news cycle.
2: No peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace.
0: Thousands of protesters took to the streets this month to protest their support for Black Lives Matter after the killing of George Floyd in the United States. There have been calls in Canada to defund the police and a collective awakening about systemic racism after too many disturbing incidents.
3: He needed to take his pills. He didn't need bullets.
0: In the House of Commons, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh was kicked out of the chamber after he refused to apologize for calling a Bloc MP a
4: racist. Why can't we do something to save people's lives? We can do something. And why would someone say no to that?
0: The Conservatives are also making headlines as they enter the last stretch of their leadership race.
4: We need a principled leader who will unite our party by respecting all Conservatives. I will defeat Justin Trudeau and I will bring us back to form a national Conservative majority government.
0: One front runner is now calling the cops on the other, alleging theft of campaign materials. And there's a possible new challenger on the Western Front. Former cabinet minister Jay Hill is now leading the Wexit party. Our political pundits, Carol Belanger, Greg McCracken, and Kate Harrison will have lots to say stick around. It started off so collegial, but things turned sour pretty quickly when the Liberals proposed MPs hand over the power to tax and spend to their minority government until the end of 2021. That poison pill, in a bill designed to get billions out quickly to Canadians, may have set the tone for what was to come. In April, the Conservatives pulled their support. If the House of Commons wasn't called back, they wouldn't play along.
3: One sitting each week is unacceptable. Physical distancing means staying two metres apart, not staying away from Parliament.
0: The NDP and the Bloc Québécois agreed to virtual sittings of a COVID-19 committee with extended question periods for ministerial accountability that was initially intended to focus solely on Canada's pandemic response. In May, the Bloc had enough. Leader Yves-François Blanchet said the Liberals had not kept their promises.
6: We made two deals on behalf of Quebecers. Deals that might have been helpful for all Canadians also with the government. And now the government is attempting to make a deal with other parties in order not to have to respect its own word toward Quebecers and Canadians.
0: It was left to the NDP to support the Liberals to extend virtual sittings until September. Their condition? Ottawa talked to the provinces about securing sick leave for workers. In June, the government said it needed to pass legislation to give benefits to Canadians with disabilities, but it also wanted to pass tough penalties for anyone caught improperly receiving the CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. The NDP said no.
4: The Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau's government, was drafting a bill to punish people who need help, who are desperate, who are struggling, and... To threaten to put them in jail and to give these people who need help uh, massive penalties. This is wholly irresponsible. It's wrongheaded. It is the exact opposite of what needs to happen.
0: The Liberals were left with no dance partners, and Canadians hoping to get a disability tax credit worth $600 were caught in the middle. The man doing all that political dancing and negotiating behind the scenes was Pablo Rodriguez.
1: Being... House leader in a, in, in a minority government is tricky enough. So can you imagine being a House leader in a minority, in a minority government during a pandemic? I mean, um, my job, I mean, I have many hats as, as House leader, but one of them, maybe the most important one, is, is to make sure that you're in touch in communications with, with all the parties so you're able to agree on, on legislation so we can move forward.
0: Pablo Rodriguez joins me now. Minister, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to start off by asking you what's going to happen to the money that was promised to these Canadians on disability, many of who basically have had their autonomy affected during this pandemic.
1: And, and that's a that's a very important question. We're looking at different options. Um, sadly, we didn't get uh, the unanimous consent. We didn't get the consent from the Conservatives. And I don't want to be partisan here, but we needed the consent from all parties. We got it from from the Bloc and the NDP, they can, not from the Conservatives. So um, we could not pass the bill. So we're looking at different options now, but one thing is sure, uh, we want that money to be able to flow uh, as soon as possible to people with disabilities because they really need it.
0: Okay, I want to talk about the last three months, uh, three and a half months, it's been quite <laughs> yeah. quite eventful. Um, yes. I want to start in March, when um, it, everything seemed very collegial uh, at first. Um, getting the new NAFTA passed, uh, the fact that uh, there was agreement on more accountability, uh, definitely. It seemed like negotiations had reached a a good tone. And then the government decided that it was going to propose um, giving itself, I would say, carte blanche, basically powers to spend and tax until December 2021. Uh, What did you think of when you saw that piece of legislation?
1: Well, I mean, we put in place that legislation, but we, but it's important to say that we sent it way before also to the other parties. Like This is historic, too, like many days in advance, and we realized right away that they had a problem with this part. So we took it away. We took it out even the day before going back to Parliament. So he wasn't even there when we were negotiating the day we got back.
0: But surely you saw this this before you sent it off to them and no alarm bells rang in anybody's heads that maybe oh maybe they won't go along with
1: this we were, we were waiting for their reaction i mean we, we, we knew we had to move very quickly it's necessary games were waiting for us to do something so we we did uh we drafted the legislation and we sent it to them uh knowing that there could be changes and you know what we were totally Open to change. it. We still are, and the opposition did make some changes to uh, some of our legislation. They even improved it, and you know, I'm I'm happy to say it.
0: They pushed you on what?
1: Well, making sure, for example, that would, that that uh, students remember they the they, they, they uh, served for students. That it was, you know, uh, 1750 with people with disability. We brought it. Uh, to 2000, uh, that was following discussions with the with the NDP, they've been requesting that too. So those are things that when I say that we were open to discussions, uh, we were and we still are.
0: What was the negotiations like behind the scenes?
1: Uh, It was a bit crazy, as always. For, for, it's a bit special for the, the government house leader because I'm always having bilateral negotiations. It's never in a group, so I spend you know some time on the phone with the conservative, Then I switch to the NDP. Then the Conservatives call me back. Then I call the Bloc, uh, and we move forward. We make changes to the document. You you recirculate the documents and try to get uh, a general agreement. One thing helps a lot is that I have a very good relationship with all of them, with with, with Candice, with Peter, with 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 Alain and and that helps. So
0: is the um... The impression that they give us when they come out uh, of the chamber doors and then basically uh, where they criticize you completely is that uh, showboating, <laughs> and it's not actually what oh, happens behind the scenes.
1: It's no, it's always very collegial. That that I mean, I think everybody will, will admit it. Then we all have a you know we always say to each other, okay, we'll we'll do what we have to do, and it's fine. It's our job, right? And of course, your position job is to oppose. And but sometimes, sometimes yeah, it could be a little bit of a show. Yes.
0: It seemed, at least for the Conservatives, that that uh, initial legislative proposal, the 2021 deadline, seemed to have um, been a poison pill for them. Was that your sense behind the scenes as well? No, never. The fact that you proposed that?
1: Tempered. No, never. There no. was never any poison pill anywhere, or, or quite the contrary. I mean, we, we need, as a government, to move fast. We need the bills to be adopted. We need the money to flow to Canadians that lost their jobs, that are sick, that are taking care of their kids. So never, ever, that was never there, ever there for that intention.
0: Well, I mean, you are the government house leader. The The government was basically proposing to do away with Parliament for another year and a half.
1: No, we, we were proposing uh, all kinds of, of, of measures in that bill. And, um, but again, by sending it way, you know, you know, many days before uh, to the opposition, Three we days, were totally, think,
0: yeah.
1: well, totally open. Yeah, but that's, that's, a normally we, you don't send bills to the opposition before to your table We did send those bills. Well, and normally we're totally you don't need unanimous
0: consent to pass them through very Yeah,
1: so, so all of this comes into our package, right? We need the support. They want to see the bill ahead of time. We send the bill ahead of time. We sit down and negotiate. Sometimes 15 hours a day, by the way. 15 hours a day i remember you know it's funny because peter P- peter the house leader for for the ndp he lives he lives in vancouver so when he calls me at 10 o'clock it's 1 a.m for me and it went on like this for a while
0: the block uh the block leader has in fact praised you for your tone i don't think i remember hearing anything quite like it before <laughs> <laughs> with your goal uh charm offensive i mean you think back this prime minister and the former House leaders did not have the best relationship, I would say, um, with the opposition parties, especially when it came to uh, reforming changes in the House of Commons. Uh, Motion six, for example, uh, some of the changes that um, barthes straggard tried to bring in as well. Uh, what, what it, Was that a mandate that you gave yourself that was given to you?
1: Well, I, I looked at my strength. My strength is, is not procedures, for example. I'm not a big expert in procedures. I have people that are way smarter than I am in my office that advise me on this. Uh, my strength is communications, may, maybe less in English and other languages, but it's but it's still communications. It's, it's, it's about people, right? And politics is about human beings. It's, it's how can we change the world? And my dad always told me, you know, there's no perfect tool, you know, to, to change the world, improve society. The best thing we human beings have is politics. That's the best way we have to change society. So that's why, you know, I got in politics, and and I believe that people from other parties were in politics for the same reasons, and that's why I said, let's communicate and let's see how we can help Canadians because we're all there for that.
0: Okay, so what happened with the Conservatives? Because they have been... And correct me if, if this is incorrect, but they are lending you unanimous support for you to introduce your bills. So they're allowing your bills to go through, but they are not... Uh, supporting them. And they have been very frank uh, that they want to see the house return back to normal. Why hasn't the house returned back to normal?
1: Well, what do you call the house back to normal, right? Like, we're, we're, we were there, and you you were there, you saw us, we were there four days a week, right? So they had more opportunities to ask questions than before, Three thousand, over 3,200 questions or something like that, instead of 1,800, Right. Only ministers asking questions, no um, answering questions, no no parliamentary secretary. So we made sure that that would happen too. So we would make sure that that the opposition could play their role. And I know how important it is. I was in opposition for seven years, and now I know how key the role is um, in a democracy. And we respect that. So we try to look for that balance between you know following guidelines from public health and making sure that the opposition could could play their role. And, this is what we found through this hybrid the hybrid mode. But of course we want to come back as a regular parliament uh, in September. We, we all want that. But for that, you need uh, electronic voting. If you have electronic voting, then there's no problem to bring back regular parliament. The problem is that all parties agree, but the conservatives to have electronic voting. And honestly, I don't know why, because this is the 21st century. Right? It would be easy to do it. If if we agree, we can change the way we vote. That's Then there's no problem to... To have regular parliament with PMBs, opposition days and everything.
0: Why are the Tories opposed to electronic voting? My HuffPost colleague Brian Maloney asked Andrew Scheer, the outgoing leader of the Conservatives, that very question Thursday.
6: Can you tell us specifically why the Conservatives are opposed to electronic voting in the House of Commons?
3: Well, we have a number of concerns. Uh, I think, uh, as you've looked at the uh, virtual sittings, there are a number of issues with uh, connectivity, uh, with uh, with uh, access, with uh, and we have we have major concerns about the uh, security around that. Uh, we are also worried that Justin Trudeau's trend line here is to make Parliament less and less relevant and less and less part of the conversation, part of uh, oversight and, and accountability on government. Uh, we believe that uh, uh, as provinces and provincial legislatures and legislatures around the world uh, find innovative ways to maintain safe distances between people but continue to provide that over oversight that's where we should be looking at and that's why our house leader Candace Bergen sent a letter to the speaker to look at options uh, to change the way we vote obviously right now the way we vote in the House of Commons we have all 338 members sitting side-by-side in a chamber. There are a number of models around the world uh, that we can be looking at to ensure that members of Parliament can cast their vote in person while still maintaining uh, social distancing and physical distancing. That's That's our preferred option.
0: So unless the Conservatives agree to electronic voting, if social distancing measures are still in place, as I assume they probably will be in September, there will be no full Parliament
1: returning? Well, look at different options. I mean, you said it. The Conservatives suggested the you know, stuff having a role from somewhere from Parliament to the museum of, of, of I don't know where. Um, War Museum, in,
0: probably.
1: Yeah, War Museum. Wellington
0: Street in Ottawa,
1: yeah. <laughs> so, but let's say you do that, but you still have to bring 338 people to Ottawa. You still have to travel. These people have to gather, take planes, right? From different places. And I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think public health thinks it's a good idea. And when they go back to their provinces, they have to self-isolate for 14 days. So how do you deal with that?
0: Yeah, but on the other hand, and I think this was a worthy point, Candace Bergen, the Conservative House leader, did make the point that if the Prime Minister can attend a Black Lives Matter rally and stand with thousands of people on Parliament Hill, why can't MPs go back to the chamber and respect social distancing guidelines?
1: Well, you cannot put 338 people in, in MPs in the house. I mean, from me to, to my seatmate, there's like three inches, right? So we were ho- shoulder to shoulder. So you, that option, unless public health says, okay, no more social distancing, it's impossible to have all the MPs back. So that's why the hybrid solution allows all MPs to ask questions. Why Why would it be only a group ch- chosen by their respective whips be able to participate? We think that it should be all MPs, because they all represent Canes and all Canadians deserve to be represented by the MPs in the House. So we yeah, average Farmer and I work for that. We just need electronic voting. Uh, I, I still don't understand why they refuse.
0: One of the human aspects that has emerged in the last two weeks is the fact that the leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh, called uh, the bloc house leader, Alain Therrien, a racist. Um, the speaker kicked him out for the day, which is what the, the rules say happens when you don't apologize, when the speaker asks you to. The NDP leader now says he will not apologize, and the bloc believes that the NDP leader should not be allowed to speak in the chamber until he apologizes. How do you see that relationship between the two parties affecting your ability to do your job?
1: Um, I don't know. Um, I, I didn't see the incident. I was in the house, but uh, at the other extreme of the house. Um, and I don't know what the, the speaker has to do uh, as of this moment. Um, he, uh, I, th- I find it extremely sad that those those exchange happened. Um, uh, and uh, we'll see for the future. I mean, it's it's. I hope those two parties are able to to talk uh, to each other. On uh, a lot of things, they're not that far. I think if it can, they can, they give the time to each other to better know the other and understand why uh, some things happen. Uh, maybe they're they're able to better connect. But one thing is sure that is that all parties in the house should should recognize the existence of of uh, you know uh, systemic discrimination, systemic racism. All parties should recognize that.
0: I assume that you know Monsieur Terrin pretty well. Do you think he's a racist? <laughs>
1: Well, I always had a very good relationship with Ther- Mr. Terrier and nothing made me, can make me believe that. Uh, on one side, I can understand uh, why Mr. Singh would be, you know, hurt uh, and feel that way, and, but on the other side, um, through my conversation with, with Mr. Terrier, nothing made me believe that uh, he, he would be. Um, so I hope they're able to talk to each other and settle this.
0: So if you have two dance partners who don't get along doesn't really change the math because you only need one of the political parties to support you. But does it affect the, the tone of discussions of negotiations? If you have two parties who, um, seem to really (sighs) be at
1: an impasse. I I don't think so because as, as I mentioned to you at the beginning, my, my discussions are always bilateral. It's not conference calls. It's not, it's never with two leaders or three leaders, uh, it's individual. We always speak all the time also to the Greens, and we make sure also to keep in the loop, um, Julie Wilson-Raybould. Uh, it's very important for us that everybody that's in the house uh, is kept in the loop of, of you know what the plans are, where we're heading, this and that, so we can do it together. I mean, it's, it's not a spin for us. This, this, this capacity to be working together uh, in times of pandemic is fundamental.
0: You haven't been able to achieve consensus. I mean, the house ends with you being unable to find a dance partner. So what happened?
1: I mean, for for, for the future, we keep doing. No, the I mean, same why, thing. why couldn't
0: you find? You're a very collegial, man. Why couldn't you find a oh. agreement in June to, you know, pass Bill C seventeen to get money for. Uh, Canadians who are waiting on disability, who are waiting for this money, Um, whether it just meant trying to get everybody to put a little bit more water in their wine. In some ways, you did succumb to one of the bloc's demand. There will be a fiscal update in July. Um, Why couldn't everybody agree?
1: Well. uh the update what was in the plan right i mean it's not something you can say way ahead in advance but we, for us it's always been extremely important to be transparent um why because it's not always possible see it we try our best we do our best uh sometimes a party will not want to move or sometimes a party will not want to negotiate it happened in one of the negotiations where the black says you know what don't call me on this one because i don't feel like negotiating we're we're not happy at this moment, so we're not going to negotiate. Fine, I prefer that. They tell me so. I turn around and I see if I can negotiate with the Conservatives, the NDP.
0: The block says that you are not negotiating because you have seen the, the the political polls and you are in majority territory, and now you are <laughs> you are no longer being as flexible as you once were.
1: No, listen, I don't have a second to think about uh, partisan stuff or. Or an election, and you know me—I love politics. I love electoral campaigns, but at this moment, uh, I don't think anybody thinks about that.
0: So, no election this fall.
1: No, I don't see how. I don't see how and why. Who would want an election now? Maybe you're having a second wave. Uh, if, if, it's, if there's one, how you know how important we will be? The impact. I mean, we're still. The, the problem is that we're having these conversations at this moment. And and sometimes uh, people forget that, hey, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, right? And even if things are a bit better now across the country, it's not the case around the world. Things are worse in many, many, many countries. And we don't live in a bubble, right? So we have to take that into consideration. So am I thinking or uh, are we thinking about an election a few months from now? No, we're still thinking about how to, you know, deliver for kids and, and protect kids and their health and their security comes first.
0: Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, madame. Pablo Rodriguez is the government's House Leader and the Liberals' Quebec Lieutenant. I spoke to him via Skype from his Montreal riding of Honoré Merci. As you heard, some Canadians are still waiting for help from Ottawa. Producer Zian Lum spoke to a few of them about their experiences of the federal government's emergency programs.
5: Um, So my name is Chelsea, and I'm 34. I live in Toronto, and I am on the Ontario Disability Support Program, which pays $1,169. That's what I get, and that's the max that people, one person, can receive. What do you think of the government's response to the COVID-19 crisis? I think that the intentions were good and it it covered a lot of people. I think the response to people with disabilities has been absolutely dismal. It's really, really hard for people who are on ODSP who don't have supportive families who are just out there in the middle of a pandemic and they have under $1,200. I just think it should have been a country federal UBI. And UBI is universal basic income. Yeah. Because here's the thing. If what we have established is that imagine you get fired from HuffPost tomorrow, you qualify for the CERB because you were working, but because I'm on disability and I'm already receiving money from the government, even though it's half of what you receive. They they say, Oh no. No, no. Not not the disabled person. There is systemic ableism in this country and it is considered okay to just ignore disabled lives.
6: My name is Renee Barron and I live in Montreal, Quebec. This coming session, so from September to December, will be my last four courses. And then in January, I will be starting my master's degree in sociology at Concordia also.
5: Could you paint a quick portrait of what your COVID-19 financial situation has been like?
6: Okay. (laughs) So, um, I mean, like everybody else, it's been quite stressful. Um, When the pandemic hit, the uh, school year was just coming to an end. So on top of, you know, studying for exams and, and uh, you know, being stressed out with getting your semester finished, it's also a time when many students are starting to look for summer jobs. So when uh, the government announced the SERB uh, benefit, uh, students were not included, uh, which was super stressful because, you know, every morning we would wake up and we would watch Trudeau's YouTube uh um, press conference, which I mean, I haven't done for, for weeks, but when the pandemic first started, it was what we did every morning. We would watch Trudeau. We would wait and see what he had to say about uh, financial health. Um And I had spoke to the government. I had called the 1-800-O-CANADA number and I asked them, what can I do? And they told me, watch YouTube press conferences because we know as much as you do, it's happening day to day. There were some uh, politicians um, I forget what his name was, but he was a member of parliament from Ontario. And he was telling people, even if you're not eligible and you need the money, apply anyways. And then there was other politicians who are saying, if you apply and you're not eligible, um, you will be in trouble. So there was a bunch of mixed messages, uh, depending on who you spoke with. So it was a very, very, very stressful two, two or three months before uh, the student benefit was announced. Moving forward now, um, just not sure what I should be doing because there's still a mixed messages going on. They've reopened the, uh, the uh, economy, the stores are back open. Personally I'm looking for a job because uh, even collecting the benefit each month, I'm so bored sitting at home all the time, I need to be doing something right.
7: All right, here it is. Woo, A minus. I'm going to give them high grades here. Listen, the government rolled this out fast. Uh, c- millions of Canadians tapped into it. The people that I talked to that uh, got it, they said it was quick and easy online and it was easy to get the money. That was CTV Ottawa Bureau reporter
0: Molly Thomas giving the Liberal government a pretty stellar grade for the rollout of its CERB. On help for businesses, however, she was less generous.
7: All right, not looking
0: so great on this one. Big bad C. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer was also less generous in his assessment.
3: From the beginning, uh, this government has been unprepared, slow, and in many cases, wrong on critical issues. Uh, This government refused to close borders and impose travel restrictions when countries around the world were doing precisely that. The advice from the government has changed. Uh, They have refused to change their programs. Remember, they've proposed these policies and promised to fix them as time went on. They said that they had to get the money out the door quickly, they had to get the programs uh, designed and up and running quickly, they were aware of problems and faults, but don't worry, they would fix them as time went on. Instead, here we are now, the end of June. They still haven't fixed the wage subsidy. They still haven't removed ridiculous technical barriers for people to access things like the small business assistance. Uh, they have, uh, look at the programs for the, for the rental subsidies for businesses, uh, severely undersubscribed. So I would give this government uh, an F on
4: handling the pandemic.
0: Well, what do our political pundits think?
4: I'm Greg McAchran, a former Liberal staffer and currently senior vice president with Proof Strategies.
2: I'm Carl Belanger, I'm the president of Traction Strategies and a former New Democrat staffer.
7: My name's Kate Harrison. I'm a vice president at Suma Strategies and a former conservative staffer.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Great to be here. Carl, you're still on mute. Dude, I need these things. <laughs> um, I wanted to start off by asking you what your assessment is of how the Liberals have handled the response to the pandemic so far.
7: Uh, you know, I, I think that at the beginning of the pandemic, the Canadian government and, and the Liberals, much like other governments, uh, we're really just trying to find uh, their footing and their sea legs and and do right by people. And I'd say that in terms of the, the government programs that have been unveiled, by and large, uh, the government's done a pretty good job in terms of trying to address the needs of as, as many people as possible. The further we get away from the immediacy of the pandemic, I think is where... Uh, there will be room for for criticism uh and and looking back to see where things could have been improved and and in my view one of those things absolutely uh could have been the the approach to uh, paying people who are are out of work so rather than kind of a a bit of a piecemeal approach from what we saw with serb and the wage subsidy and other programs uh other countries adopted a different model they chose to uh, get money out quickly to everybody and then make the decision to take that back around uh, tax time for those that didn't actually need it. Uh, I wonder if maybe Canada would have been better served, uh, Canadians would have been better served by that type of approach. When the finance minister has been pressed on that, he hasn't provided a whole lot of reason as to why that couldn't have worked here in Canada. So I think that there will be more room to uh, critique uh, the Liberals' approach. Obviously, preparedness is a major area uh, that I think deserves um some more attention and some more criticism but i you know i we're not as bad as as some other jurisdictions so by by that standard um you know i think the the liberals do deserve some credit
0: carl what's your assessment of how the liberals have done so far
2: well i think that uh like many other governments, uh, including here in Canada, provincially and, and around the world, uh, the governments were very slow to react to the emerging of the pandemic. Uh, I mean, the WHO was slow to react to it, declared it's very late in the game. Other countries were more proactive. Uh, Taiwan comes to mind. New Zealand comes to mind. Uh, Canada was slow of the mark, and they were telling us that, no, Closing the border doesn't work, it won't help, uh, wearing masks doesn't work, it won't help, all these things. Um, and 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 then they were hiding behind science to tell us that, you know, now we know that it was a good idea. Um, in terms of the program, to me, at the time, Universal Benefits made more sense, and it was interesting to see that it was being pushed out by some conservative uh, analysts and by New Democrats. So, uh,
7: a moment of unity, Carl.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, it seemed to be like it would have been simpler than to have this slew of programs where, uh, you know, people had to find the right criteria to fit in the right box, and some people did fell through the cracks. So the government then was coming up with a new program and then another new program, and I, I think there's like 67 different help program when uh, you know it was difficult to put them uh, together because of course the bureaucracy, the public servants were also not working in the office they were working from home with all the problems that that it created at the beginning. Uh, that said, um, there is no question that they I think that Justin Trudeau uh, when it comes to to uh, to his government uh, you know could he have done more? could he have done faster? Yes uh but at the same time um there are other governments one south of the border that has done way way worse than us
0: is that the measure we should be using to compare ourselves anyway (laughs) you're giving greg a free pass go ahead greg
4: uh you know carl makes a good point context and qualifying our response is really important in the early days i think people were unprepared for the level of attention average Canadians were giving to this. And I think part of why Justin Trudeau's numbers, but also perhaps Doug Ford's numbers are so good, is that the average Canadian sees how tough it is to be a politician. This is unprecedented times, unprecedented challenges. And then they see people like you, Althea, doing your job on a daily basis. And if you have never seen a Scrum before, they can seem extremely vicious and there you have you know the prime minister premiers defending every day you know answering questions it's it's like a, a defending a thesis on a daily basis so i think a lot of canadians who were watching were also you know considering that wow they, you know they seem like they're under attack and this is a really tough you know place for them to be in and and so then i i think you know they also got some some good marks from that as well i think one thing that's a, that i would say that that I find personally different from March until June is that the level of dread seems to have dropped a lot in Canada. There was the big unknown in March. We didn't know how this was going to hit us. You know, we were told originally that it was only older people and then there was evidence that it wasn't. Um, you know, things were moving very quickly. Carl alluded to this as well. So we seem to be getting different types of information. So I think one of the things now as we open up in June, we know that the challenge is still there. It doesn't have the same level of of, of dread um, that it did, I, I think, at the beginning of it. And that, that's part of it as well. When we Carol mentioned about universal benefits, I think one of the things I want to see coming out of this is what lessons we learned about how we governed. Programs get out the door. The government freely admitted that they weren't complete, that they could be improved. But by all means, give us your feedback. Give us your context. And that is so alien to how governments usually um, govern you know you put a budget down and you say it's perfect we thought so hard about it and then they'll find out there's a mistake and they'll quietly change it you know perhaps this is a better way to do public policy is to throw it out this way i you know i think there's a role for the opposition parties there we saw some opposition parties use it more than others um, but again, like when we're free and clear of this, I hope there are big discussions about what we learn from this, not just from the medical and health safety, but also is there are there better ways to govern um, a Canada? I, I, I think one of the challenges we've learned, too, is is what role our federation has when you have you know, a country with the number of provinces and territories we have. It's not so easy just for someone to say to the federal government, I want you to do this when they learn that something was actually a provincial power.
0: Do you mean that uh, you want people or future governments to test out policy like in real time with the public, or that they should be working more cooperatively with opposition parties?
4: I guess what I would say is let's perhaps not look at not having all the answers immediately as a failure or a weakness of governing. Perhaps it's, you know, again, when we're free and clear, there'll be some time for a conversation about what areas of public policy can we determine that way? Or is it just in times where, you know, quote unquote, we're all in this together and there's a bit of forgiveness uh, that a, a policy may not be fully thought out?
7: I'm excited by that. I'm excited by that, Craig, because that sounds a lot like populism to me. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually think what? That I take that, it all back. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually think that the real judgment is going to be how the government handles a second wave. Right. And, you know, a lot of the the tolerance uh, and the understanding that I related my first uh, remarks on this are because everybody was struggling with the unknown at the same time. Right. I think we do have to recognize that for what it is, that level of understanding and that lack of knowledge will not be uh, will not be there for a second wave. Uh, We know how the disease works. Uh, We know who it targets. We know how to prevent uh, the disease from spreading. So in my view, going back to the way that uh, things were in March, if that's a policy option that's entertained, barring a major shift in how the disease is is impacting people, I think that that would be cause for alarm and cause for criticism. I think that now that things are opening back up, it's going to be very, very hard to close them again. So I expect politicians can and should be prepared for what this, this new normal cliché terminology, but what that looks like, uh, because it will not be going back to the way that it was locked down in march
2: yeah uh, kate raised a uh, an excellent point about being prepared for the second wave the question i have and and i think Canadians will start to wonder once we're through this is why weren't we better prepared for this um, the emergency measures and and the plans uh, seem to have been incomplete uh it seems that reports that were produced to you know in advance of this possibility were shelved and left, uh, you know, on the government uh, uh, drawers for years, Um, you know, and and it's the federal government is is guilty of this. The provincial governments are also guilty of this. Um, And and, and clearly, uh, it's like we didn't see this coming. But over the years, we've had new disease that popped up and we were lucky that they were not as contagious and as deadly as this one it seems to have been the mentality we dodged the bullet but we're, we're good uh well we weren't good and and we have over 8000 dead now uh, in canada and and climbing um and and i think i think there will be a time uh, for for looking into this i know some provincial governments will launch public inquiry into all this especially when it comes to uh, old uh, old age uh, residents and, and care centers. Um, I think we need to look at the model that is there, uh, which basically created the conditions for Canada to be one of the worst countries when it comes to elderly uh, death because of COVID-19. Uh, we need to do things differently, and hopefully we'll learn from this and do things differently as opposed to just repaint uh, the, the, the walls in, in those centers and say, well, they're better now.
0: Yeah, you do get the sense that the government even doesn't want to be critical because it is still relying on the advice of officials that gave them bad advice in January, telling them that quarantine wasn't going to work, that shutting down the borders was not going to work. And so there's a reluctance to um, demand some accountability from people at this point. WE TALK ABOUT THIS, WE NOW HAVE THE NDP, JAGMEET SINGH, AND THE BLOCK uh, BECAUSE MR. SINGH CALLED MR. Alain TERRIEN, THE HOUSE LEADER, A RACIST. Um, THERE SEEMS TO BE A, WELL, THERE NOT SEEMS TO BE, THERE IS a DEFINITELY a, a BREAKDOWN IN RELATIONSHIP BETWEEN THOSE TWO PARTIES.
6: I HOPE THAT THE LEADER OF THE NDP WILL APOLOGIZE.
4: IF I WAS TO APOLOGIZE, People have said that I've stood up to systemic racism, and by not apologizing, I've said that I'm not going to apologize for wanting to make things better for people. And if if I was to apologize, I would be betraying all these people who now feel like they matter because someone said, you know what, this is a problem, and I'm not going to back down from it. It's a way of saying people matter, and I can't take that away from people.
0: Beyond talking just about what happened, I'm interested, especially from Carl, does this mean that the NDP is no longer interested in competing in Quebec.
2: Well, some can conclude that with the way it was being handled. Um, you know, I, I, if you were to ask Alexandre Boulris, I think he would disagree with that. But he's the sole MP uh, in Quebec. But you know, uh, uh, leaving aside aside the fact about if Mr. Therrien is a racist or not. Uh, I mean, he was not a rogue MP. Doing or saying things on on his own behalf, he was doing it on behalf of the party and, that he represents, and, and on behalf of the voters that that elected them, and and so the, the what happened is that it created a perception, and some people used that as an attack against the NDP. Uh, that Jagmeet Singh was calling, uh, you know, Quebecers racist, uh, including Premier Legault for not believing in the concept of race, uh, uh, systemic racism. So, uh, I mean, we've been down this road before. I mean, the 2015 campaign, the NiniCab issue, when Tom Mulcair was calling out uh, uh, different proposals as as being racist policies, uh, well, it turns out when you call people racist, uh, rightly or wrongly, they don't tend to vote for you. (laughs) So uh, that's a big problem. Um, Now, I think people will move on from that. We're in the summer. But uh, I'm curious to see how much of this uh, is paying off for the NDP elsewhere, uh, because in Quebec right now, we've seen the NDP drop to uh, 8% in the latest latest polls and and fighting with the Green Party for the fourth place. Um, And uh, meanwhile, people seem to have been siding with the Bloc Québécois uh, on this issue, Uh, and so they've got a little bit of a bounce. Um, I don't think it was planned. Uh, but that's the reality right now politically.
0: So the other story that we probably would have paid a lot more attention to if we had been in normal circumstances is the fact that the Conservative Party are actually having a leadership race.
6: The bitter battle
4: between Conservative leadership rivals intensified today as the Aaron O'Toole campaign revealed it has given a confession to police that they say links a member of Peter McKay's campaign to serious criminal charges. LULL and the McKay campaign continue to deny wrongdoing, accusing O'Toole of substandard cybersecurity.
0: Kate, what do you think of the race thus far and what if people have not been paying attention to what should they what should they think about?
7: Well, it's it's not a coronation, uh, and I think that there were a lot of conservatives at the outset of the race that uh, wanted to make sure that that would be the case that Peter McKay wouldn't walk into the room and everybody would uh, you know, fall fall head over heels and, and give their votes to uh, to him. This has become a competitive race, even though folks have been quite understandably tuning out to, to deal with COVID-related business. You know, people have a lot of other big concerns on their minds other than this race, and so I totally get that. Um, in terms of, of the debates and, and the issues, I think that there's a lot of members that would have liked to see more exchanges of ideas uh, rather than trading social media posts. Um, you know, for those that are just tuning in or wondering what to look for, uh, I think that, you know, the the status of of the race is very much a, a two-way race between Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole. It seems, uh, you know, I, I say this the last week of June, it takes now my tune again. It seems that Peter McKay uh, has had a bit of a momentum shift back in his direction uh, after a pretty uh, bumpy campaign start. And it seems that the debate has given him a little bit more momentum uh, as O'Toole tries to, to change the channel with uh, a pretty uh, nothing burger scandal about um, uh, Zoom video calls. Don't give sensitive information about Zoom video, about campaigns on Zoom. That's a, a lesson <laughs> campaign. I uh, didn't think I needed to learn that. But in any event, uh, I think that in the absence of a convention and in the absence of an opportunity to actually meet with supporters face-to-face uh, and even meet with caucus members face-to-face, I think there's, it's going to be a huge challenge regardless of who wins to really pull the party together and, and present a, a united friend. Uh, you know, usually there's a bit of excitement that accompanies these races and a lot of that has been deflated because of, of the COVID situation. So I think that's one reason among many why they're, the, the Tories won't be pressing for an election anytime soon uh, because they'll want to work really hard to build up that uh, support and that excitement behind whoever the new leader is.
0: Kyle Greg, what do you think of, of the conservative leadership race so far? I mean, I, I'm intrigued by Kate saying she thinks it's a, a nothing burger. To me, I'm not that the scandal seems like a, it's a real scandal, but I did not expect this mudslinging. Uh, you know, come June between uh, O'Toole and McKay, and I wonder what it means for for caucus supporters. Like, is this uh, elastic damage between these two camps?
4: Well, I'm going to suggest that if you call in the RCMP during a leadership um <laughs> during one of your opponents it's it's not probably the best thing for the conservative brand um i was struck this week uh, i was reminded that it's 30 years ago this week that jean chretien was chosen in calgary um i was there i was just an infant of course um and i remember the awkwardness of paul martin and jean chretien being on on stage but for the most part that was set aside for the future of the party Liberals went on to win in 93 and continue to win. Um, eventually you know the the Martin Kretchen uh, split was not overall positive for the party, but for the most part they were able to govern. When, you know when this all this news broke this week, you know I had the mental image of what it would be like for Aaron O'Toole to have to congratulate Peter McKay or Peter McKay to have to gra- congratulate Aaron O'Toole. It, th- this is a really tough situation, a really you know very negative split. Uh, Jason Kenney has made it very clear he doesn't want Peter McKay to be leader. So if that is the end result, what happens to the Conservative Party? And, and are we returning to the reform base and the progressive conservative base? And when when Andrew Scheer was elected, I said, uh, I was on a panel with my friends Carl and, and Kate, and I said, this reminds me an awful lot of when the Liberals elected Stefan Dion. And I stand by that. There are. It, it takes a long time after a significant loss for a party to decide where the real problems are. I'm not sure the Conservatives are there yet. It took the Liberals a long time and a lot of loss to sort that out.
0: It doesn't seem like they agree on what the problems are. That was my takeaway, at least, from the debate. You have Peter McKay having one very distinct vision of where he thinks the party needs to go to build that tent, and Erin O'Toole has a very... Different, or at least he's vocalizing a different vision on how to build that tent. And yes, Carl, you get the last word. But I also want to ask you about Wexit. Should we be concerned about Jay Hill uh, leading this new reform party out in Alberta?
2: Yeah, dividing the right. Um, you know, here we go again. Uh, the Wex. I don't know. How, you know, organize the Wexit party will be in time for the next election. But you add to that, Maxime Bernier still around. And, and so you have a lot of people competing for that, those right wing voters. And 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 you know the, what we saw with Andrew Scheer at times is that he was trying to protect that right flank, uh, which was of course uh, pushing him away from the center and the more centrist liberal red uh, uh, blue switchers. Um, I don't think, I mean, he should be a bit worried about about that, but uh, certainly you need to keep an eye. The, the issue for the Conservative, I think, is that, um, I mean, Rick Anderson put it very well on Twitter, is that right now, uh, and under Andrew Scheer and the strategy to focus on the base so much, uh, the level of support is back to what it was pre-merger, when the Canadian Alliance and the Progressive Conservative were disunited. And and that's the larger problem. Now, of course, um, the polling results right now maybe are meaningless, uh, there's a lot of people who are rallying behind the government. We see it at the provincial level as well, because we're in a time of crisis and we are in it together. And and also because basically all the ice time is occupied by the governing party, uh, daily press conferences, ministers having press conferences, officials. Not a lot of room for the opposition to to poke at the um, at at the government. But that will change. The question is is will the conservative be able to, you know, reunify not only the party. But but these elements that are you know leaving the party slowly, at first the Reform Party was also a very tiny you know little thing, and and it it led for the Liberals to govern for uh, decades because of that.
0: Well, when we look at when Stockwell Day was uh, chosen as leader of the King Alliance, the Prime Minister Cressy at the time was very quick to say, okay, let's go, let's have an election <laughs> right now. I think the government had like, three and a half years in its mandate. Um, Kate has already told us she doesn't think that there is going to be an election this fall. Do you guys think there will be?
4: Uh, I don't. I I think liberals are very well aware of things like the halo effect. George Herbert Walker Bush was doing very well during the Gulf War, Winston Churchill. There's lots of examples. Plus, it's a bit crass.
2: Yeah, we'll have to see where we are in the pandemic in the fall and how big the second wave is when it comes, uh, because I think nobody would uh, be very happy to have to line up for hours, you know, while COVID-19 is still around. And and so that would, you know, of course, create a backlash. Now, there is a narrative that can be created for the Liberals to go and ask Canadian people for a strong mandate, a clear mandate, a stable mandate uh, to help the country, uh, you know, when it's relaunching its economy. And, and, and so there's a case there. Uh, but of course, the one thing that I know is that when you have power, you should be very careful uh, if you wish to gamble it. Kate's
0: nodding. I'm giving you the last word, Kate.
7: Yeah, I think the the political activity south of the border is also a pretty major block on on having an election uh, in Canada. I think, you know, having Trump as a as a foil or continued to be a foil for for the prime minister is is serving him well, and I don't know why he would uh, why he would test that. Um, nobody's party on the call has any money to run an election. And then the government has everything they want. The Liberals have the daily presser. It's very much like a campaign. They get to splash a little money here and there, not face tough questions in the House. It is a dream scenario for the government. Although
0: one expects that we will be back in the House in September. Sort of not. Okay. <laughs> Believe it okay. when I see it, I think. Okay. Um, Carl, Greg, Kate, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. For thank that. you. Kate Harrison is the vice president with Summa Strategies, Carl Belanger is the president of Straction Strategies, and Greg McEachern is a senior vice president at Proof Strategies. They all join me via Skype. Well, that's our show. A big thank you this week to HefPost Canada's senior politics editor, Ryan Maloney, and our amazing technical producer, Mikhael Stein. And of course, the lovely Zian Lum, our Ottawa Bureau reporter who helps me stitch this show together. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and your story ideas at Althea Raj, that's A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J, is my handle on social media. We've missed not being in your feed, and we hope to be back to a regular schedule in September, so please do hit that subscribe button. Until then, take care of you, please stay safe, and have a great summer.